Well, I love being awake, but I hate waking up. Anybody with me? I wouldn't say that I'm a night owl, but I'm definitely not a morning person. Uh, my mother, on the other hand, well, uh, let's just say that when I was little, she would wake me up by coming in and pulling open the shades and singing, rise and shine and give God the glory, glory, rise and... All I can think in a moment like that is, how can you possibly sing at a time like this? Don't you know what I'm about to lose? Like, how can someone be so happy at the thought of leaving those nice, cozy sheets and facing all that harsh, brutal sunlight? Oh, there are certain moments when it's just inappropriate to sing a happy song. The Bible has a collection of songs in it. It's called the Psalms. And in the book of Psalms, there is one song in particular that is just over-the-top, obnoxiously happy. It is Psalm 98. It begins like this. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. And it just gets happier from there. Uh, it says, shout for joy all the, uh, to the Lord all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with mu music. And then it goes on to invite all of creation to join in. And by the end of the song, the, the seas are cheering and the rivers are clapping their hands and the mountains are singing with joy. It's like a Disney musical, you know? But it's not until the very last verse of the psalm that we find out why everything in all of his existence is so happy. Verse 9 says this, Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Huh? Where did that come from? I mean, what, what would you think if one of our worship pastors came up here and said, All right, everybody, put your hands together. Let's sing with all our might because God's coming back to put us on trial for everything we've ever done. My kids got in a fight uh, the other day. They were on the other side of the house. And when I walked into the room, you know what they said? Hooray, dad's here. Now we can face the consequences of our actions. <laughs> Judgment is not a happy, clappy moment. And yet what you find over and over again in the Bible is God is being praised for judging evil and vanquishing his enemies and defeating wrongdoers. And today we're going to ask the question, how, how could that possibly be good news, something to sing about? I want to welcome all of you here today, those of you here in St. Charles and those of you in Blackberry Creek, Bartlett, DeKalb, uh, those of you watching online, we're so thankful that you're here worshiping with us today. We are currently in a series we're calling Both And. It's a series where we're looking at attributes of God that at first glance, they don't seem like they should go together. It seems like you'd have to pick one or the other. But as we've been digging deeper, we're finding out that God can actually bring these uh, seeming opposites into harmony. And when he does, he actually is all the more amazing, all the more beautiful because of that. We actually worship God more because he is both three and one. He is both powerful and sacrificial. He's both demanding and gracious. And today we're going to look at another one of those surprising combinations. We're going to talk about how God is both a warrior and a peacemaker. And this is one that, that troubles a lot of people, especially the warrior side of the pair. Uh, and I can completely understand why. Uh, for one thing, it, it feels kind of inconsistent with what we know about God, doesn't it? You know, God is loving, God is gracious and kind. You, you look at Jesus and he's, he's so compassionate, he, he's so gentle, and uh, he, he forgives his enemies. He, he, he doesn't retaliate when people attack him. He teaches his followers to do the same thing. He says things like, uh, turn the other cheek, uh, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. The, the one who lives by the sword will die by the sword. It doesn't sound like the language of a warrior. The, the other reason it's troubling is because it feels like it's a, a dangerous idea, doesn't it? 
You know, it, it doesn't it feel like it would contribute more to violence and conflict in the world if you believe in a God who's a warrior. Like if you, if you believe in a God who, who uh, crushes the evil ones and, 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 and demolishes those who oppose him, uh, what's going to happen when you identify someone as evil or someone opposes you? Are you going to imitate your God? I mean, the last thing we need is, is, is someone else to have a, a religious excuse for more, uh, being more judgmental, be more divisive, be more violent. I mean, we've got enough of that in our world, don't we? Is it really a good idea to think of God as a warrior? It's a, a troubling image. And yet, it is one of the most pervasive images of God in the whole Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so my goal today is to, to explore how it can be that, that God being a warrior is good news and completely compatible with him being a peacemaker, but also how God being a warrior helps us be peacemakers in a violent and unjust world. Uh, to see this, I want us to take a look at a passage in Isaiah 59. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, Isaiah is one of the big books at the end of the Old Testament, so the easiest way to find it is probably to use the table of contents. Uh, but if you just flip towards the middle of your Bible and turn a little bit to the right, you'll probably run into it. If you hit Jeremiah or Ezekiel, you've gone too far. Now, Isaiah was a prophet in Israel about 700 years before Jesus. And the job of a prophet was this. It was to speak into current events and to say, this is what God thinks about what's going on. Now, sometimes that involved a prediction about the future, which is usually what comes to our mind when we hear the word prophet. Uh, but it was really more about reinterpreting situations from a God's eye view so that people would act in accordance with that. They would change their behavior to get in line with that. Now, most of the prophecy that we have in the Bible is written in, in a poetic form. It's a poetic genre. And so what that means is we find a whole lot of two things. We find a lot of imagery and we find a lot of emotion. We get this strong, forceful language that's trying to move us. Uh, and so as you read this, it's not a, an attempt to depict a literal uh, description of what's going on on the ground. It, what, what's happening is you're supposed to pick up how the situation feels, why it's significant, what, what matters about it. And, and the reason in, in this passage uh, that Isaiah is doing it this way is because he's looking at a situation of injustice, a society of injustice, uh, and he's trying to get us to feel what God feels about that situation. Because if we feel that, we are going to begin to understand why God fights why God fights. So let's begin reading in Isaiah 59. We're going to read about 15 verses. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are deeds of evil, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They've turned them into crooked roads and no one who walks along them will know peace. And so justice is far from us. And righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. 
Like the blind, we grope along with the wall and feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. And among the strong, we're, we're like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We, we look for justice, but we find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight. And our sins testify against us. Our, our offenses are ever before us. And we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion, treachery against the Lord. Turning our backs on our God. Inciting revolt and oppression. Uttering lies our hearts have conceived. And so justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets and honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. In the beginning, God made a good world. And God had an incredible vision for his good world. Uh, God's vision for the world is sometimes summarized in the Hebrew word shalom. Uh, shalom most often is translated peace in the Bible, but it means a lot more than sort of a, an inner sense of calm or a lack of conflict. Shalom is when every aspect of creation is woven together in perfect harmony with one another and with God. When, when individuals are in harmony with their communities. Uh, when humans are in harmony with their environment. When different cultures are in harmony with one another. And God is working in and through it all. As one theologian described it, shalom is the way things ought to be. And God put human beings in charge of this project, of making this happen. He, he sent us out to make something of the world, to go into every corner of creation, uh, to take all that he had made and to form communities and create cultures, to discover things, to invent things, and to fill the world with his glory, with his love, with his joy, so that all people and all the world would flourish and be all that God intended it to be. Humans were made to cultivate shalom. But obviously that didn't happen. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Uh, early on in the story, some of God's creatures rebel against his plans. Starts off with some of his good angels who, who reject God's plan. They become fallen angels and they begin fighting against God's purposes in the world. And, and the leader of these fallen angels, Satan, comes to the very first human beings and, and offers them an alternative to God's plan. And he says, hey, hey, wait a second here. Why, why don't you set out on your own? You know, I, I, God has been holding you back, hasn't he? And, and, and he put you in charge of this place, right? Well, why don't you just take charge? Make things the way you want them. It'll be great. You'll be free. You'll be happy. It'll, it'll be wonderful. Just do what you want. And so human beings rejected the vision of shalom that God provided. And they started to build the world around ourselves. We started to build life around us instead of God. And contrary to what the devil promised, we weren't made free. We simply came under his influence, joining with him in the fight against God. We have become accomplices in the cosmic rebellion. And what Isaiah 59 is describing is the inevitable result of that rebellion. Isaiah is describing a society that is totally unraveling. And look, look how he describes it. Society is full of injustice. Look at how often that idea comes up. Verse 4, no one calls for justice. Verse 8, there is no justice in their paths. Verse 9, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not reach us. 11, we look for justice but find none. 14, justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. No justice. What do we mean when we talk about justice? What is justice? Well, at the most basic level, justice means treating people with equity. 
There's equality. It means treating people the same under the law. So if someone is accused of a crime, they should be given a fair trial. If they're convicted of a crime, they should get a, a fair penalty. Uh, no matter who they are, the, the rich or the poor, uh, high status, low status, male, female, citizen, forer, foreigner, old, young, all are the same. Uh, you judge things based on the case that's before you, not on the person that's before you. And so the powerful are not favored and the weak are not neglected. Justice is equality before the law. But, but it's more than just how you apply laws. It's also how you distribute resources. Justice means that everyone has their needs met in society, no matter who they are, uh, rich or poor alike. Society is not just when, 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 the, powerful, or when the weak go hungry and the powerful uh, feed, eat in excess. Uh, justice means equality in both punishment and provision. And when justice breaks down, it is always the most vulnerable in society that suffer the most. When the Bible brings up injustice, it, more often than not, it brings up four groups of people. It, it brings up the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. Because in biblical times, if trouble came, uh, these are the people that would have had the hardest time coping. They, they had the least resources economically and socially to, 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 to handle things when, when uh, something devastated their lives or devastated the community. And so the Bible shows extra care to those who suffer uh, extra when injustice comes. When the Bible says justice is driven back, what it means is, is that the most vulnerable, the least privileged members of society are being ignored, taken advantage of, or mistreated. And you've got to understand, this is more than just isolated people in society being jerks. It's, it's the structures and the systems, things like courts and laws and marketplaces, that have become biased in favor of those at the center and against those at the margins. This is not people cheating at a game, okay? If you imagine you're playing a, a board game or something, this is not people uh, sort of trying to bend the rules, you know, cheat and get, get away with something. This is when the rules of the game themselves have been rewritten so that it's uneven. So it's easier for some players to win and other players to lose. That's what the Bible means by injustice. It's when the structures of society are biased against the most vulnerable members in that community. And the result of this is that society is also full of violence. Look again at Isaiah 59. Verse three, your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Verse six, acts of violence are in their hands. Seven, they are swift to shed innocent blood. Acts of violence mark their ways. Verse eight, the way of peace they do not know. This is the inevitable result of injustice. When the, when the systems and the structures in society are biased, when they're bent, the, the result is conflict. As a way of ensuring power, those who are on the privileged side use violence or inflict violence on those they want to keep down, and those who, are, who have things against them use violence to defend themselves against the injustice they're feeling. And so injustice leads to violence more often than not. And in this chapter, the saddest thing of all is that even when people realize that there is injustice in their world, they can't seem to find a solution. Look at the second half of verse 9. We look for light but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we're like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We, we look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. No, no one has any idea what to do. 
No, no one can see the path forward. That, that image of, of growling and moaning, it's, it's the cry of people who say, I'm, I'm frustrated, I know this isn't right, I can't, but we cannot figure it out, we cannot find the solution, I wish we had something to solve this problem, but we just can't find it. And as a result, the, the, the culture becomes poisonous, deadly. So what it means in, in verse five, they hatch the eggs of vipers, they spin a spider's web, Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. It's a toxic, treacherous environment. Rather than flourishing, the community is dying. The society is in self-destruct mode. It is imploding, and those who suffer most are those who are most vulnerable. This is not shalom. It is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about that situation from God's perspective. God made the world and he loves the world. Every single person is made in his image and precious in his sight. He loves his people. So how do you think God feels when he sees what we are doing to each other? How does he feel when the strong exploit the weak? How does he feel when the rich oppress the poor? How does he feel when one group commits violence against another group? How does he feel when he sees the cosmic forces of rebellion, of evil, getting exactly what they want, the destruction of God's shalom? How would you feel? I mean, how does a father feel, a mother feel, when they hear that their child has been publicly humiliated by the older kids at school? Or when a daughter hears that the nursing home workers that are supposed to take care of her father are actually neglecting him? Or how does a brother feel when he finds out his sister's boyfriend has been hitting her? What does love look like in that situation? Is it loving to just turn the other way, to ignore it? Is it loving to, say, to just shrug and say, well, I guess that's somebody else's problem, it's not me. What does love look like when the one you love is being destroyed? Let me show you. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He, he saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay. Wrath to his enemies, retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. This is what love looks like in the face of evil. It looks like anger. God loves the world too much not to get angry at evil. You see, this is the thing that most people misunderstand about God's anger. God's anger is not the fury of a tyrant who's just annoyed that he can't get his way. It is not the petty revenge of a jilted lover. It is not the irrational rage of an abusive parent. No, God's anger is the resolve of a king to rid his kingdom of invaders. It is the passion of a husband defending his bride. It is the protection of the father saying, you will not harm my child. This is why God coming in judgment is good news. 
It means God is coming in love to rescue the world from evil. It means God is coming to set things right. It is what our hearts have been longing for, for someone to declare once and for all in this muddy and mixed up world, this is right, this is wrong, and to kick evil out once and for all. God's judgment is the first step in healing the world. It's like if you were renovating an old house, the first thing you need to do is go gut the moldy walls and take out the, the rotting steps and remove the faulty wiring so that you could rebuild it and you can make a safe place for you and your family to live together and love one another. God is reestablishing shalom. And in order to do that, he's got to get rid of all the things that would harm or destroy the ones that he loves. Why does God fight? Because he loves. Now, you are probably at this point, if you're, if you're thinking this through, feeling some tension. Because there, there's a part of you that knows this is really good news. You, you, it's a good idea that God kick evil out of the world. That would be so wonderful, wouldn't it? And yet there's this, this teensy little problem, isn't there? And that's actually the second point that I want you to see. That the problem is who God fights. Who God fights. Uh, look at the first half of Isaiah 59 again. Look at, look at the pronouns that are used here. Verses 2 and 3, it uses you and your. It's like a finger pointed out to someone else saying, you've got a serious problem here. But in verses 4 through, through 8, it, it shifts to they and them and their. It's still kind of looking out there, but it's a little more neutral, talking about those people and their problems. But then in verse 9 through 15, it shifts to we and our and us. It goes from second person to third person to first person. It goes from you people to those people to us in here. Uh, Michelle, my wife, and I just finished watching the final season of a TV show called Person of Interest. Uh, and it is a show uh, about a team of people who try to prevent murders. Uh, and the way the team knows when to intervene is there is this machine, this artificial superintelligence, which is what you would expect from a show that Michelle and I like. If it doesn't have sci-fi, it's probably not one we are watching. Uh, the machine has access to all the surveillance systems in the world. It can listen to any phone call, read any email, see through any security camera, and so it basically knows everything that's going on. And because this super intelligent computer has studied vast amounts of human behavior, it's actually pretty good at predicting when a violent crime is going to happen. And when that's going to happen, it, it sends this team a social security number of someone they need to investigate, and that person is either going to be the victim of a murder or the perpetrator of a murder. And so each episode, the, the team has either a good guy to defend or a bad guy to capture. And the job of the machine is to sort the world into victims and perpetrators, good guys and bad guys. But then in one episode, something happens to the machine. Uh, it has a malfunction and it needs to uh, be restarted. And when the machine gets rebooted, it's got to go through this team and say, okay, let me reevaluate who these people are, figure out if they are good guys, bad guys, victims, perpetrators. And so the machine reviews all the things these people have done throughout their life, all the records, all the videos, everything that's happened. And so it sees all of their actions, all their words, their, their whole life. It sees all the people they have hurt, all the rules they had broken, all the lies they had told, all the, the, the bad things they had done for good purposes, all the times they had compromised their principles. And it goes through all this and, and it realizes, the machine realizes, wait a minute, these are not the good guys. They actually belong on the bad guy list. And so the machine decides it needs to fight them. These people who for four seasons have been the heroes of the show are now the enemies. Now, I'm not going to tell you how that plot development uh, resolves. It's a good show, so you should go watch it yourself. But I think this is the situation we find ourselves in. 
we're used to thinking of ourselves as the good guys. You know, we, we know that we do things wrong, you know, everybody does, but we tend to see ourselves basically on the side of right, you know? Uh, we, we, don't, we, we might think of ourselves as heroes. You know, we're out there, we're, we're, we're fighting for what's right, we're uh, opposing evil, we're, we're trying to make the world a better place even in just the small way that we can. And even if you don't think of yourself as a hero, we try to think of ourselves at least as innocent bystanders or, or, or victims of evil. But when our whole lives, when, when every action, every inaction, every word, every thought, every impulse is evaluated in the sight of the all-seeing judge, it becomes really clear. We're part of the problem. The poison that is killing the world lives in our hearts too. And that, that means if I'm part of the problem, when, when God fights against evil, he's going to have to fight against me. If I'm a rebel against the king, when the king comes to restore peace to his kingdom, who's going to have to deal with my rebellion? This is why verse 2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Because of our sin, our sins have cut us off from God. And if that doesn't change, when God straps on the battle armor, it is not going to go well for us in that war. So who does God fight? He fights us. Because we're the bad guys. So this is a problem, right? How can God defend his people from evil when his people have participated in evil? How can he rescue us from the cosmic rebellion when we have joined the rebellion? Now, I'm going to address that, but before I get to that, I, I want to pause for a second and ask a question. How do these two points, these first two things, help us become peacemakers in our world? Because I actually think the two of them together are, are a really powerful combination. Because I think what they do is they keep us engaged and humble at the same time. They keep us engaged and humble at the same time. I mean, if we really believe the first point, that God fights because he loves the world, it's going to keep us engaged. Like, if we believe in a God who cares about justice, we're going to care about justice too. If God stands with the victim and the vulnerable, then we're going to stand with the victim and the vulnerable too. We're not going to pretend like everything is all right in the world. We're going to let the needs of the world disrupt our lives, disrupt our peace of mind, our lifestyles, our relationships. We're going to get engaged, even costly, in costly ways. But it's important to get the second point, too, because if God fights us, if we're part of the problem, we're going to have to be humble. There's a famous quote from a Russian author, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was imprisoned in a work camp in the Soviet Union, and he was a victim of injustice, if ever there was one. And he commented in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, on our desire to sort the world into good guys and bad guys. And this is what he said, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? If, if we know that we're part of the problem, we're much more likely to second guess our assumptions. You know, people love to comment about how to fix social issues, don't they? And so often we talk about issues as if the, the, the root causes were obvious and the solutions were simple. If only those idiots on the other side of the aisle would just start using their brains like we are, we could solve this. But if I'm part of the problem, I'm going to be quick to listen and slow to tweet. I'm going to take in other people's stories. I'm going to hear their perspectives. I'm going to be open to correction. And I'm not going to be surprised when I found out, you know what, actually I've contributed to this. I've done what's wrong here. 
If I'm part of the problem, I'm going to question my ability to easily identify and punish and correct injustice. I'm going to have to be humble. And it's important to get both sides of this, isn't it? Because if you're engaged without being humble, you're probably just going to just blunder through life and do more harm than good in both your personal life and in social issues. But if you're humble without being engaged, you're likely to withdraw and, and get cynical and say, I, I just don't think anything can be done. I mean, what can I do? There's, there's no solution. I can't, I, there's nothing to do. It, it, it's another both and. We've got to be both engaged and humble at the same time. Uh, this has been a rough summer for our country, isn't it? A every morning when I, I click on my news app, I am praying, God, please, not another one. Not another black man shot. Not another police officer killed. Not another terrorist attack. Please, God, not another one. It's starting to feel like Isaiah 59. You know, we look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. We look for justice, but we find none. And one of the things that's so tragic about these situations is how divisive it's become. It's really hard to say anything meaningful about it without it becoming controversial. It's been hard for me thinking about what I should say to you about all this. The last couple of weeks, we've had guest speakers, and so uh, this is the first time a Christ Community pastor has been up here since the, the events in Minnesota and Baton Rouge and Dallas. And we, we've prayed about these things, but we really haven't said much more than that. And, and I, I thought that given the gravity of the situations and given our topic for this morning that was picked long in advance, it, it didn't seem right for me not to say something. Part of the problem is that the, this weekend is sandwiched between the national conventions of two different political parties. And in an election season, which pretty much feels like all the time in America, everything gets politicized. And it, it makes it impossible to say something about current events without it feeling like you're endorsing a, a, a candidate or a party or a, a policy. And, and that's not what I'm doing. That's not what I want to do at all. I don't want to talk about American politics. I want to talk about kingdom politics who the king would have us love, how the king would have us think, what the king would have us do. But it's not just the political atmosphere that makes it hard. It's also the personal experiences of people in our congregation. I know that some of you are in law enforcement, and it is a really tough time to be a cop right now. People are critical, they're suspicious of the police. It probably feels like the whole country is looking at you as you're doing a job where you have to put yourselves in harm's way. You gotta make tough calls every single day and they're, they're second guessing you, looking over your shoulder. And now some unhinged people are taking shots at officers and it is getting scary. But here's the thing, I, I, the, the best cops I know, they're, they're just as concerned as anybody else about bias in the system. They, they don't want the system to be prejudiced against anybody. I mean, that's the whole reason someone becomes a cop, isn't it? You, 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 you care about justice, you wanna serve and protect, that's the point. You want individuals and communities to, to be safe and to flourish. And it, it saddens you when that, that breaks down in any way. It, and even so, it, it does feel like you're being criticized by the mistakes and the prejudices of other people, and it's hard. But I also know that some of you are black, and, and you are feeling sad and angry and afraid, and for good reason. And you're surrounded by white people who just don't get it. Because even though everybody's seen all this stuff on the news, it's finally getting public, it isn't really new. It's been your experience your whole life, and it's been your community's experience for decades, even centuries. 
And really, it's, it's, not, it's not just about the police. It's a, the, the racial bias is woven into everything in this country. How teachers respond to you at school, what it takes for you to get a job, how many other people of color you see in positions of influence, whether at work or in the government or at church. And, and so when your white pastor gets up on stage, you're, you're wondering, is he going to say anything? Does he even know? Does he care? Does my church community actually understand what we're going through right now? There, there are others of you here, and this, maybe this is the majority of people. You, you, you see this stuff happening, and it just makes you sad. And you're not really sure what to think about it, what to do about it, but your heart is breaking. But you're not really sure how to respond, what, what you know, posture you should take to it all. So here's, here's what I want to say to all of us. I want us to stay engaged and stay humble. We've got to stay engaged. It's so easy when it's story after story to, to just withdraw, to get numb, and to say, this is so hard, and it doesn't affect me directly, and so I'm just, I, I'm not going to worry about it. Please do not do that. Stay engaged. God cares about justice. God cares about peace, and we need to also. And stay humble. Because that's really what's missing from most of our public conversation about this stuff. People offer quick assessments and soundbite solutions, and, and people talk instead of listening. And they point fingers rather than asking, what's my part in this whole problem? And that, that applies to us no matter who we are. We've got to stay engaged and stay humble. But, but let me say this. As, as a, a white guy to the other white people here, and I have noticed I'm not the only white person at this church, um, we, we really need to put some extra effort into being engaged and humble when it, when it comes to understanding the experience of people of color in our country. Because most of us really don't get it. Uh, many of you know that my family is a, an adoptive family and a, a foster family, the, the family that I grew up in. And, and uh, growing up, I had uh, hundreds of teenage foster sisters, uh, and I have eight uh, adopted sisters. And, and two of my adopted sisters are black. And we grew up in the same town. We went to the same schools, attended the same church, had the same parents. But our experiences in life have been radically different from, from one another. We lived and moved in the same system, the same culture, but they faced obstacles I didn't even know were there. They experienced biases I wasn't even aware of. I have gone through my whole life benefiting from being a white guy, but I've been completely oblivious to the fact that I had an advantage. It's like if I was playing a video game and it was set on the, the lowest difficulty setting and, and I kept getting the high score and thinking, oh man, this is because I'm so good at this game and not realizing other people are playing at a higher level. And, and the thing about bias in society is that if you're on the benefiting end of it, it's really easy for, for you not to see it. That's kind of part of the privilege is you, 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 you can ignore the fact that things are going hard for someone else. And, and so for me, it's far easier for me to see a, a video of a black man being shot and say, wow, that was horrible. I feel so sad about that. But then just write it off as an isolated thing rather than seeing it as a, a, a part of a bigger cultural situation. And, and so I think that, that what it means for us as white people to stay engaged and stay humble means to make an extra effort to listen to the anger and the sorrow and the fear of the black community, to, to really listen. And to learn about ways that we have uh, benefited and contributed to racial bias in our culture, because we have. And to be slow to offer explanations and excuses and solutions. And whenever we can, to, to join in lamenting the injustices that have happened. Because they break God's heart and they should break ours too. We need to stay engaged. 
and stay humble. Let's keep moving. One, one final point here. We have seen why God fights. He fights out of love. And we've seen who God fights. He fights us. And that's why it's really important that we see how God fights. After Isaiah wrote his prophecy, the people of Israel went into exile. They they were invaded by a foreign empire. Jerusalem was sacked. The temple was destroyed. They lost control of their land. And and for centuries, they lived under the domination of empire after empire. The the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And and Isaiah and the, the other prophets made it really clear that this was God fighting, God punishing Israel for their idolatry and their injustice. Uh, But these empires, uh, even though they were God's way of fighting against Israel's injustices, they were also the source of injustice against Israel. And so after hundreds of years, the people of Israel are just sick and tired of being mistreated and oppressed. And and that meant they were looking to passages like Isaiah 59 and saying, we need the warrior. Uh, We need God to strap on that armor and come fight our oppressors. We need deliverance. And that's exactly what they thought they were getting with Jesus. I mean, think about the scene when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He, he rides into town and the town comes out to greet him. And they're waving the palm branches and they're laying down their coats and, and they're, they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is a word that simply means save us. And in this context, it, it means save us from our enemies, save us from our oppressors. And, and they're, they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and that's a, a quote from Psalm 118. And that psalm is actually a psalm about God uh, fighting against the nations on behalf of Israel. And so it's a battle song. It's a war cry that they're singing out. They're they're thinking they're getting the warrior. This is the guy who's going to come and end injustice and vanquish the enemy and establish the kingdom. And they were right. But they were also really wrong. They thought that Jesus came to fight with a sword. But he actually came to fight on the cross. What would have helped is if they had understood something Isaiah had written just a few pages before Isaiah 59 in Isaiah 53. Go ahead and look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. This is another description of that that coming deliverer, but he looks more like a suffering servant in this one. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. This is a description of how Jesus identified with the victims of injustice. He he suffered insult and rejection and pain. He he, he was set up and betrayed by a friend for economic gain. He received an unfair trial at the hands of corrupt religious leaders. He was wrongfully convicted by foreign politicians who were just trying to cover their back. He was crushed by a system that was rigged against him. He was on the receiving end of all of the injustice and all of the violence and all of the lies described in Isaiah 59. That imploding society was imploding on Jesus. But let's keep reading. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. See, Jesus doesn't just identify with the victims of injustice. He actually identifies with the perpetrators of injustice. Jesus stands as the representative of God's people, God's rebellious people. 
And so as the king, he takes responsibility for all the injustices his people have perpetrated. He's taking the just punishment on behalf of all of his people. He's being crushed for their crimes. His people have turned away from God, and he is voluntarily taking the heat for it. This is how God is able to free us from evil, even though we are willing participants with evil. The judge is being judged in our place. And so the cross is full of mystery, full of paradox. The warrior conquers by being conquered. God stands both against us and with us at the same time. God identifies with us both as victims and as perpetrators. The cross is the way he both fights evil and loves his enemies. It's the way he is both a warrior and a peacemaker. And this is why judgment is such good news. It's the reason we will sing. At the end of the Bible, we get this vision of Jesus returning to earth. And he's riding on a war horse. And his eyes are blazing like fire. And he's got a sword that he's going to use to crush the nations. And he's got the armies of heaven behind him. He is coming to shut down the cosmic rebellion finally and fully. And on that day, we're going to be singing. Let the seas resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing to the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. Because here's what we know. He's coming in love. He he comes to rescue and defend the victims of evil and injustice. He he comes with a burning passion to set things right, to renew the world. He, He comes to bring true and lasting peace, to bring shalom. And for the first time ever, the one who sits on the throne, the one who's behind the judge's bench, he, he, is, he is going to get it right. He, he was never part of the problem, so he can bring the solution. He's going to call good, good, and evil, evil. And he's going to bring into the new world everything that is praiseworthy and beautiful and life-giving. And he's not going to let anything slip in that, that would harm or defile or destroy. And no one, no one is going to stand there on the, that day and say, Jesus you got it wrong. You missed something. You overlooked this or that. No, the longing of our hearts for justice will finally be satisfied. And the question is, what will happen when he comes to judge you? When he declares the verdict on your life once and for all? That all depends on whether or not you have surrendered to Jesus in this life. Whether you have bowed your knee before you get there whether or not you have waved the white flag and abandoned the rebellion. If you have pled for mercy, I promise you on that day, you will receive mercy. Because you will find that the one who is meeting out punishment has been punished in your place. And the hand that holds the sword was the hand that was pierced by nails. And the warrior on the throne was the peacemaker on the cross. Will you surrender to him? Will you trust him? Will you make peace? Let's pray. God, we we bow before you because we know that we deserve the judgment, that we're part of the problem, and we plead for mercy to you, our just and good king. God, thank you so much for sending Jesus, for for, for laying down your life like that, Jesus. For loving your enemies. God, we pray that you would give us a heart like you, that we would 
love and stand with victims of injustice. And that we would forgive and embrace those who have done wrong. God, we pray that you would make us peacemakers like you so that we can bring a little bit more of your shalom into the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.